evening. Good evening. You are watching and or will be listening to Encouraging Your Spirit, the podcast. I am your host, Chris, and I'm so excited tonight because tonight we have Apostle Dr. Edward Donaldson. And uh, he published a book that is entitled The Black Lives Matter Movement Toward an Intersectional Theology. So we're going to be talking about that, faith, life, ministry, how it's all an intersection. Uh, we welcome and introduce to some, present to many, Apostle Edward Donaldson. So I know I just did that in brief introduction, and there might be some that have yet to purchase the book, but could you tell our podcast listeners a little about yourself? Well, I will tell you that I am the director of the Doctor of Ministry program at Seattle University, where I also serve as the faculty fellow for the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement. Mm-hmm. Um, I pastor the greatest church on the planet, Woo-hoo, Kingdom Family Worship Center International, and they're the greatest church not because I'm fortunate enough to pastor them, but because uh-huh. they are such wonderful and amazing people. Okay. Um, and I serve as the Dean of the College of Affirming uh, Faith Leaders and Bishops. Okay, awesome. So I have been reading uh, the book uh, I'm really enjoying it because, like I said, learning research is always fun to me. How did this work come about? Well, that's an interesting question. I think it really came out of the profound um, shock and grief mm-hmm. around the tragedy, which was Michael Brown, okay. the, the state ex- the state sanctioned execution of yet another black man, mm-hmm. and the digital l- lynching that was subsequent to it. Um, you know, I mean, it was this moment where over and over and over and over again we saw mm-hmm. this young black body laying mm-hmm. in the street in a pool right. of his own blood for hours mm-hmm. and that image just kept circulating mm-hmm. and traumatizing and re-traumatizing and, re- and at the time my church was largely millennials mm-hmm. um, and then the other the second largest group was senior citizens Okay. So, so mm-hmm. I had a huge group of millennials and a huge group of folks that had worked in the civil rights movement. Okay. okay. And so the millennials were in shock and awe and terror and angry. Mm-hmm. And the senior citizens were in grief and disappointment. Right. Because right. the older folks <clears throat> had a narrative around, haven't we already fought for this? Haven't we gotten better than this? What was, what was our marching and working and sacrificing? To what end? Right. Yeah, and the right. younger folks were just angry and having a visceral response to the disillusionment of equality. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. And so I think that that kind of incubator was kind of the beginning of my um, curiosity and my mm-hmm. query around uh, hashtags Black Lives Matter. Yeah, and that's, I think that's the interesting thing because the thing that comes up to me uh, when you say that is having similar conversations with my parents when George Floyd was murdered. And now my parents were born 48, 49. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, segregation, integration, teachers, military leaders, my dad's presiding elder. So th- that's their experience. Now, my, it's interesting the conversations that developed because my mother shared, because they grew up in uh, Marrakesh, Georgia and Warner Robins. Mm. And uh, my father shared the experience of not being able to uh, graduate from college in the sense of walking across the stage mm. because they were rioting in Augusta because a man had been killed in the jail. And the autopsy, the autopsy that they said did not match 
what he uh what his injuries actually were so mm -hmm. he was like they were coming back because my father sings you know in choir and stuff like that too just which is where i probably get it from but the point is he was like they were on the bus and he was mm -hmm. like they they were coming back to campus and then somebody gets on the bus and it was like hey y'all gonna have to pack up and go home because th this city is about to erupt in you know a few minutes and then my mom was saying how when you compare that to now she was like my dad was story was they're still killing us my mother's statement was it's still getting it's getting worse and my point being 44 is like i don't necessarily know if it's worse i think it's that you have video media to highlight it and yes. that whereas in their time you just had word of mouth maybe you know black newspapers maybe you know this people sat around the six o'clock news and talked about it but you just have more coverage or just the ability to because we have access on this phone and, and all all around where you didn't have that before so Absolutely. it's interesting to look at grieving and then now that caused me to read an article and they were saying you know what you just said about how grief and what was this for because you had somebody that was saying well, we did march. Well, we did do these things. And we do have the ability to move in a neighborhood. We do have the ability to uh, buy a home. We do have the ability to work in spaces and places that we didn't work before. But, you know, you still have this happening. So it's like near the uh, the conversations um, appear to be tension filled. So, yes. And it's like, well, how, what is the the solving? So I get the millennial response of this is this is an outrage. This is. So I get both of them are happening at the same time. At the same time, yeah. <laughs> right. And what did you learn when you were writing this book? Oh my goodness, there's I learned so much. Um, I am I am a churchman um, okay. to my core, mm -hmm. in that I was born in the church. I okay. Don't know, I don't know life outside of the church. Right, I'm, right, I'm right, cubic. right. Okay. Um, and sometimes when you're in the water, you don't even know you're swimming. Mm -hmm. And there were things about the black church. Now, let me kind of put a parenthetical clause there. The black church is certainly not a monolith, right? It's, right, right. Nothing right. monolithic about the black church. Yeah. And with that yeah. said, there is a Baptist-Methacostal tradition that kind of there's there are some lines right. um, and some threads that go through <laughs> all of our traditions and experiences and right. expressions as the church born in response to racism. Mm -hmm. but I did not realize the gap between the the pulpits and the academy okay and I did not realize that even some of our um, intellectual preachers who have gone through the academy and the liberal academy at that are still performing in the pulpit as though their pulpit presence is not informed by their education. Okay. When I surveyed the theologians and activists, mm -hmm. and then I did a focus group with the pastors, the gap between the theologians and activists and the pastors was astounding. Really? Okay. As it related to progressive issues. Okay. There's almost a way in which many of our, um, and I, Many many of the pastors surveyed. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. uh, almost um, have taken a white evangelical fundamentalist view of the mm -hmm. world. Okay, um, that the effects of Puritanism 
mm-hmm. are, have a stranglehold on okay. these school kids. Okay. And so I was, I was shocked at the politic that came out of, out of the pulpit. Right. Um, and as a preacher and a bishop, um, and I'm in the 16th year of my episcopacy, um, mm-hmm. I should not have been taken off aback. Okay. Shouldn't have been, but okay. I was. That you, but you were, which which brings up the one of my questions because you write in the book that Puritanism in America leaves the Black Church a fourfold inheritance of terror because I love text so mm-hmm. I'm hermeneutical in thought I know that yeah. <laughs> so, so so what do you mean by Puritanism when you so say when when we go back in our history um, or in the history of the United States as a mm-hmm. as a religious construct. We okay. go back to a period um, where there was a theological construct that undergirds the American experiment. Okay. Um, and that, that is known as Puritanism. It is the idea, um, I, I'll, I'll talk about Puritanism from a Methodist lens. Okay. That, like there's a method of holy living. There, right. there is a particular way of being and doing. Okay. And that way includes this um, exclusion of anything that is not pristine or pure or right, right. so it's it's it is um no drinking no smoking no right. sex outside of wedlock mission behavior modification yes okay yeah, right. it is a history of behavior modification but okay. it is also a history of behavior modification tied to white middle class norms okay Okay. right so a family is a husband and a wife right with 2.5 children okay in a house with a white picket fence right like right yeah yeah. it's all of those things tied up in a neat bow Mm -hmm. um if we're going to talk about it in in an accessible conversational way Um, and that has left us terrorized because the assimilation that we try to do is into a system that is fundamentally antithetical to the black experience in America. Right. Because that, that, that type of system, what I'm hearing is opposite of black people's lived experience and reality. Sure. But we were not allowed to marry. Right. I mean, it's just fundamentally preposterous that Mm -hmm. we would think you could recreate those systems when we know that family of choice is as strong a bond for mm-hmm. black peoples as a family of genetic linkage. Right. And sometimes a stronger bond. Right. Um, right. There, you know, there are folks that you call cousin or brother or sister that you actually have a stronger family commitment to than right. you do maybe maybe your biological right. Cousin. The chosen family versus yeah. biological family because you don't get to choose which family you're born into, but you can choose. And a lot of us have had to choose. <laughs> had, to choose. <laughs> had to choose for different reasons. It would be easy for me to say it's LGBTQIA plus because I'm trans and black, but it's deeper than that. It's, Much. it's also you know there's a lot of you know family uh, issues, ish, uh, experiences. You know I was reading a post one time that said you know some people were built on love and some people give us survival experiences those are two different types of family structures to live your life and then everything in life feels to be a relational experience it's all a relationship it's just different (laughs) it is and when we think about the just take the effects of the prison industrial system 
right. on the black family structure. Right. Um, we've been forced in the family of choice because mm-hmm. we because our family of origin, our biological reality has been interrupted mm-hmm. by systemic issues that are outside of our control. Right. And so we always had to take uh, Aunt May May's son in and yeah. he became brother. And, yeah. you know, or, you know, John John went to jail and Mary Sue died and that left little Billy Bob an orphan and Billy Bob came in and your mama told you this is your brother and you will treat him as your brother. And I think of that too in the context of I had a first cousin and he came to live with my aunt because literally it's like my house is here and where you're sitting and we're saying his camera will be where my aunt and uncle live. Mm -hmm. And he came to live with them. Now, I never knew as a kid why he lived with them for a long time. But the story was, you know, my uncle was having relational issues in his marriage. And he was concerned that his son might get taken away. So he brought Horatio there to live for a while. Oops, I might be telling a secret, but we all grown now. (laughs) 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 Oh, well, but but I mean, it's 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 one of those things where it's like oh and that's only that's only been something that we talked about because um well, my cousins during the pandemic we started getting together on zoom and talking about okay well the reasons why we're not as close is because okay well your family structure was this and i didn't really know about you until and so it's all of these things and it's like well it's not that i wasn't trying to be close to you i just didn't know you and now this is zoom or this pandemic has presented a, a space where we can get on here you know on a saturday or whatever time and we can just talk and we're all grown right. now and everybody right. has their own lives and you're just building a relationship even though biologically we're all first cousins but we don't necessarily know each other all on that level like i'm closer to one because me and marcy grew up together well she was always there the other ones not so much. They didn't live in the same vicinity. So there are reasons and that I think that that has definitely had an effect on family structure. And then when you add the church in there, some of us, church was a part of our practice every day. There was no, I remember growing up for me, I got two Sundays that I could miss. Everything else I had to go. <laughs> and they didn't you tell me better that than me because I got zero Sundays to it miss. It was high school when my mom said that. It wasn't oh, growing up. It was like, oh, well, she was like, because she'd be like, fifth Sunday, you don't really do anything on fifth Sunday because I grew up seeing me. So she was like, if you, you didn't want to go. And I was like a senior in high school when she said this. So this was a long time of service because they used to serve my father didn't become a pastor until I was in ninth grade but before that he was the deacon and the trustee and and the driver of the Sunday school van and my mom did stewardess and so we Saturdays were busy days in our household all of them (laughs) so it was like if it wasn't first Sunday they were delivering meals on wheels if it wasn't that they were visiting the sick so it was always that level of uh experience as far as church being in your life Whereas my cousins, that may not have been how they lived. And that's cool, but it's it's a real thing. Other question I had was, I call it empowering thoughts. You wrote, theology is always engaged with voices from communities that give meaning to the text and language to the concepts reveled in text. The task of theology is to revise the language of the church. More so, you state uh, further, theology is always political. Tell me more about this. And the reason I have this question is I have two questions. One, 
uh, I did, I want to know about that statement. So that's first question. The second question, second reason I asked this question is I did uh, this podcast with another author that wrote another book and he was saying his belief that politics should not be in church. I did not provide discourse or go back because I'm like, I don't really know you like that. So I don't disagree. I mean, I don't agree with you, but I also totally allow people to be themselves and to say what you think. I don't always have to agree with you. So I get it. But I often think politics is in church because it's the space that it was always in church from a civic government was the perspective. They were always telling you about candidates, always telling you about rules and governance of your life and how it impacted you. Now I think that's an intersection and because blackness is impacted by that, whereas with this particular person, their race, their socioeconomic status is different. Life affects them differently. That's just life. That's not shade. So my question is, when you say theology is always political, what is it that you mean when you say it? So theology, uh, our words about and thoughts about the divine okay. are always political in mm-hmm. some, because my thoughts about the divine always have a direct impact on how I see and view the other. Okay. Right. Okay. So okay. If, if it is that I am to say that we are all made in the image of God, then mm-hmm. I must also say that every human is is of sacred worth. Okay. If That's every human is of sacred worth, then for me, uh, universal health care is a, is a no-brainer. Right, right. right your right. theology is your politic. It's okay. going to manifest politically. Now, okay. I would beg to differ with your, your past guests in that to say theology doesn't belong in the church is to misrepresent and to mischaracterize the person and work of Jesus. Okay. Because even what we call the triumphant entry, as we get ready to move toward Passion Week and Easter, April okay. 17th, the triumphal, triumphant entry was political satire. Okay. Remember, the Roman government was having a big parade at one end of town to mm-hmm. remind the Jews that the Passover was mythology. They, they would bring the emperor in on all of his horses with all mm-hmm. of his chariots and they would ride through the town because they would say, no deliverers coming for y'all. Y'all are celebrating Passover, but let us show you, you are under Roman occupation. You got out of Egypt, but you won't get out of here. Okay. So then Jesus grabs a donkey. Right. The comes in on the dirty. opposite end of town mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. rides in through a crowd of people who say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is political satire. Yeah, that's interesting. To say that politics don't belong in the church, what did Jesus do? Right. Jesus impacted the healthcare system by providing healing. Jesus impacted food insufficiency by, by providing food. Jesus impacted uh, uh, every, every type of marginalized community by responding to their physical lived realities. Okay. So to say that 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 politics doesn't belong in the church, I offer that you don't know what the church is. Right. Yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting perspective. I mean, I agree with you because I was like, well, you know, I think politics is the space and place where more people need to have these conversations about how things affect people and bring in, if, if it's not you, bring in experts that can talk about that. Now, I'm not saying that you need to do that at at 11 o'clock or whatever your main devotional time is, 
But there are other times, and with you know technology, there's other spaces and places that you can bring this type of conversation because people life affects everybody. So why not provide the resources and information that'll you help? You can't so, preach Jesus, right? Without preaching politically. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't mean you have to endorse a specific candidate. Right, right, right. Because right. we're, let's face it, we're in bed with the government because of nonprofit status. And so there are some restrictions on what and how and when. And right. What. But when you preach Jesus, you preach a particular worldview. Okay. If I, if my worldview is that you are worthy of love and mm-hmm. worthy of support, and when I go to the polls, right, I vote the issues that speak to your work. The pastor never has to tell you, vote for universal health care. Vote for, vote for, right. I don't have to tell you that. Because mm-hmm. if I tell you that love your neighbor as yourself, <laughs> if I just say that, yeah. when you go to the poll, you say, all right, what's the most loving of my neighbor? The way I want to be loved. Oh, I want them to have health care. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I want- I want you to be able to, you know, take care of yourself. I want, you I want to your to wage dentist. to increase. Can you yeah, can you be period. in an apartment or something? Whatever it is you need, I want you to have it. I want and you to I have a livable wage. Barrier for yes. you to have it, and I, I think about that because, um, and I see that in the as I'm in the as you stated the meat of the book and, and talk about intersectionality and how it, how Jesus is is within that. So uh, my next question was, how do you define intersectionality, and what's the role that it has in your work and life? Yeah, so I don't define intersectionality. Okay. I I allow the work of a wonderful sister, a black woman, okay. Kimberly Crenshaw, to stand on its own. Right. Um, right. I, yeah. I think what I what as a as a black man who has been informed by womanist scholarship, not a womanist because I'm not a woman, okay. but Alice Walker's definition of a womanist is a woman who loves other women, either sexually or non-sexually. Um, a woman who is committed to the care and well-being of the entire people. Mm-hmm. I think as a as a black man, male embodied individual, my job is to be in solidarity and use my male privilege to lift my sister scholars up. Right. And Cr- Kimberly Crenshaw is a wonderful attorney mm-hmm. who came up with the concept of intersectionality in order to describe multiple marginalizations particularly she started with black women it's been expanded right but her thought was when black women are fired mm-hmm. and they go to court and they say i'm fired because i'm black well if black men are not being treated the same way they lose the case right because the company can point to the way it treats black men mm-hmm. and then you can't say it was blackness right If that same woman says, I'm fired because I'm a woman, if white women are advancing in the company, she loses the case. Right. The intersection of her race and gender Mm -hmm. is a compound burden that most marginalizes her. She doesn't have male privilege. She doesn't have race privilege because she is a black woman. Right. Now, if you add to that, that she might be a black poor woman Mm -hmm. a black poor lesbian woman right you just start Mm -hmm. stacking these multiple identities and they become multiple marginalizations 
That is what intersectionality is. Intersectionality is where these multiple marginalizations come into play Mm -hmm. to move certain individuals further and further from the center of power and privilege. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I definitely understand that. Yeah, so I hold her definition. Hold it, right. um, (laughs) And I don't try to veer from it because I think what we do, what we have a tendency to do as male scholars is we tend to take somebody else's work, mm-hmm. never give attrition, mm-hmm. and also expand on it in ways that um, are unhelpful. They can right. pervert the original right, intent right. of the work. So I, right. I really try to stick closely to that model. Okay, okay, cool. What would you say is the role of the church and leaders in daily life? The church is the place. Mm-hmm where the disparate parts of our humanity are joined together, never to be separated again. Okay. That's John Shelby Small. Okay. I think our role as leaders in the church is to partner with people in the enterprise of wholeness. Mm -hmm. Not always the enterprise of holiness. Right. As we've said it, right? Like, right. Oh, yeah. I'm hearing all the difference. It's still right. I need to, I wish it would get out of my mind, but that's what I hear. But listen, I know you hear it because I know it to be so. I hear it every day. Right. Right. Uh, and I come up in the holiness way. So I know okay. something about it. Uh, but this enterprise of wholeness, mm-hmm. what does it mean for the parts of our humanity that are broken and bruised and damaged and mishandled? by the universe, what does it mean for those parts to come together to find healing, to Mm -hmm. find health, to find safety, and to be integrated so that we actualize our highest self? That's the role of of, of a church leader, is to partner with people in the enterprise of self-actualization toward the image of the Christ. Okay, okay, this has been a fantastic, discussion last question as a scholar a leader a thinker a writer when you look at your journey what do you want people to get from your life oh you're not playing today um that's a heavy hitting question what do i always here with it (laughs) what do i want people to get from my life um we are on a journey mm-hmm. and we come here to manifest the image of God okay. in such a way that the world knows the divine better. Mm-hmm. My prayer is that I be what it is I agreed to be when I mm-hmm. came into the earth realm. Okay. So that by encountering me, walking with me, experiencing me, you have rubbed up against God. Okay. And that by encountering you and experiencing you and knowing you, I have rubbed up against God. And together we have magnified God. We've made God bigger in the earth just by our being together. Okay. That's wonderful. 
There's nothing else I can add to that. I thank you so much for your time. And I thank each and every listener for tuning in to this fantastic episode. How can people reach out to you? Um, I know you said Kingdom Family Worship Center. Uh, how can they reach out to you? Should uh, listeners, I'm going to put the book link in the uh, link when I post the podcast, as well as the if you have the church link too, so they can reach out and the easiest way to get in touch with me is um, through either Twitter or Instagram, mm-hmm. and it's okay. at Dr. Donaldson okay. uh, on Twitter and in Instagram. Um, you can get the book on Amazon or okay. at Stop, and um, I'd love to be in touch with your listeners. Oh. 